2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books and a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Helena DeBres, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wellesley College, we're talking about her new book, which is Artful Truths The Philosophy of Memoir, which is just out from University of Chicago Press. What is memoir? What makes a memoir both nonfictional and literary? What are the memoirist's moral obligations to the people they write about besides themselves and to their potential readers? And is the writing of memoir just indulging in narcissism or even revenge? In her new book, de Bresse examines the philosophical issues that the memoir genre raises, given the doubts we may have about whether people can write the truth about themselves, whether the demands of literature will overwhelm the demands of truth-telling, and even whether there is such a thing as a unified, persisting self to write about. De defends the nonfiction status of memoir while acknowledging that memories fail, We often engage in self-justification, and it can be difficult to draw a line between the experiential truth that the memoirist tries to capture and falsity. She deftly navigates issues in metaphysics, epistemology, aesthetics, and ethics in this highly readable examination of an evolving literary form. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Helena Debray. How are you? Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank
0: you very much. It's wonderful to be here.
2: Um, so, I'm very excited to talk about your new book, Artful Truths um, The Philosophy of Memoir. Um, so, before we get to the actual content of the book, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to philosophy and how you came to write this book. Yeah, thank you. Um, how
0: did I come to philosophy? Well, I've, I've always loved writing, so I've sort of seen myself primarily as a writer since I was a kid. You know, I wrote a novel when I was 11, a terrible novel, but you know, a long <laughs> one, that's something. Um, and in high school and college, I was mainly interested in literature to begin with, but I was taking philosophy classes in college too, and at a certain point, my interest kind of shifted over to that academically. Um, I'm not really sure why. I think part of it is I always had an inclination towards order and structure, so I like the way that philosophy helps you to understand the world in this systematic way, break down big problems into little ones, um, and, and also just the sensation you get when a, when a philosophical argument breaks through your preconceptions, you know, causes a, a fundamental shift in how you see the world. So sort of like what Emily Dickinson said about reading poetry and you know, having the top of your head blown off, I think both philosophy and literature do that. So I went to grad school in philosophy and worked on political philosophy for 10 years. Then I found myself missing literature and wanting to get back to creative writing. So post-tenure, when you have a bit more time, uh, I began writing short stories and personal essays and I also started writing philosophically about literature more memoir in particular as in this this new book Uh, so that's how I got to what I'm doing right now I guess
2: Uh uh-huh interesting so um I think you say in the book that you know you have been writing a memoir right your own memoir is that uh... yeah
0: yeah I did that first um, I sort of did a bit of a hiatus um, on philosophy and did almost exclusively creative writing <laughs> for a while. And then I missed philosophy. So I wanted to work out a way to bring the two together. So the memoir is actually about philosophy. And this is a philosophy book about memoir. They're kind of twins, I guess, book twins.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's a really interesting way to uh, to introduce readers to a lot of different, you know, um, very basic issues in you know, metaphysics and epistemology and ethics, which, you know, it's kind of a very, and it's very accessible in that way. I mean, you, you talk about a different, you know, various metaphysical issues with truth and knowledge uh, in a way that somebody who doesn't have a philosophy background uh, would be, you know, very um, uh, able to to grasp sort of the, the issues. Um, so, so let's start with the initial question, you know, what, what is memoir? I mean, what makes a particular writing um, a memoir as opposed to say, you know, autobiography or some sort of personal essay or something like that?
0: Yeah. Um, there are different ways of defining memoir. Um, so mine is maybe a little idiosyncratic, but not very, I don't think. Um, you know, at a very general level, uh, most of us would see a memoir as a a non-fiction uh, prose narrative that's written in the first person, um, and it's about the author's own past experience. That's roughly right, I think. Um, it's not—it's—it's it's not quite right. I don't think that, for instance, a memoir has to be written in prose. You could write it in poetry, like Wordsworth did. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the first person. There have been some interesting memoirs that are not in the first person. Um, so. Uh, th- the, uh, the Life of Henry Adams, which was written by Henry Adams, is written in the third person. Um, and people also often write personal essays in the second person. So, you know, you could have sort of little corrections of that general definition. That's about right. Um, so it's this sort of non-fiction narrative of the author's own past. Um, but there have been some interesting changes, or evolutions in that type of writing over the years, uh, it used to be the case that uh, if you wrote a memoir, you would write a, a linear account, you know, starting at your birth, um, and give a kind of traditional story uh, of how you, uh, how you uh, sort of came of age, you know, various ways in which your life experiences formed your personality. Uh, it would be focused largely on external events, sort of publicly accessible events, mm-hmm. and it was usually written by uh, someone who had established some other reputation first so the memoir wasn't what made you famous or the autobiography wasn't what made you famous it was your account of what had (laughs) so you know politicians write traditional autobiographies like that Um, you know artists sometimes do uh, generals Um, so there's that kind of traditional form but more recently people have not been uh, inclined to do it that way those things still sell very well but in the the realm of literary memoir we've moved towards uh, what I call modern memoir, which is different in several ways. Um, it's not usually a full-life narrative. I mean, no one can write a full-life narrative. You know, you can't narrate your own death. <laughs> but um, the modern memoir tries to do something quite a lot more partial than that. It will focus on a particular time period uh, or a theme in the author's life. So narrow in on that. It's not likely to be a linear narrative. Often it will jump around in time. Be structurally experimental in that way. And there's much more emphasis on the interiority of the author, so reflection on what the experience means rather than just narrating the experience. And a more of a literary set of devices, you know, scenes and dialogue extended at length.
2: So, I mean, that, that does raise an interesting question. I mean, you're right. Most of the time you think of memoir, it's somebody who is already famous and that's why – People would be interested in reading about it because of the the prior fame of the writer. So, what what accounts for this? Uh, you know that you know every you know a- anybody just about as, you know can or or uh, can or is writing their own memoir. I mean, what's what's that? What explains that sort of change of interest? Where you know any any person whatsoever, not at all famous, very ordinary life. Uh, yeah. You know, um,
0: what, some, yeah. yeah, sometimes people call them nobody memoirs. So it's not just that anyone can write one, but nobody can. You know? <laughs> Who are you to do this thing? Um, so, yeah, what explains that? I'm not sure what explains it. Um, I and mean, I think from a literary point of view, um, often what we're really interested in when reading a memoir, um, or even the personal point of view, is, is, is what the experience really felt like to the person living it and what it meant. You're not necessarily mainly going to the style of writing um, for some really impressive kind of catalog of actions that were consequential in the world at large. Often, you want to, you know, connect with this 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 intimate conversational voice of a fellow human, um, and we can all do that. We do that every day with our friends and family, if we're lucky. Um, and so, it's that kind of experience that many memoir readers want to be able to access: see another human talking. Frankly and candidly and articulately uh, about their um, about what matters to them, Um, and sometimes a a focus on on narrating, um, you know, major um, officially impressive acts doesn't let you do that. So Virginia Woolf said uh, in her little uh, piece and essay on on uh, memoir writing um, that. The problem with the traditional autobiography is that it it leaves out the person to whom these things happened. Sort of (laughs) the person itself is not really able to be seen because there's too much standard narration going on.
2: Well, yeah, it just occurred to me there's sort of this also a general sort of move away in literature, literary criticism away from, you know, the great men to, uh, you know, anybody's voice is worthwhile listening to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think many people, when they're thinking about maybe writing a memoir, have this crisis of confidence, like, why would anyone want to read about my life? I've done nothing, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think often that thought, which is understandable, is based on this idea that, you know, certain people are important, you know, um, and interesting to listen to and others aren't. Um, and that's a, there's a bad history of that um, you know, where it's it's men who are impressive and privileged, um, powerful, usually white, you know, who are the interesting ones, um, and the people who don't fall into those categories are not. And I think there's been a general sort of social pushback against that. Um, so, yeah, we, we want to read about people who haven't necessarily got the power already, um, what their lives are like, um, sort of shift that, that, that value focus.
2: Okay, well, good. Um so one of the main, one of the first challenges you, you talk about with this is what you call the fictionalist challenge. And there's there's a number of different versions. But um, the basic question is whether we should understand memoir as, you know, within the c- broad category of nonfiction rather than fiction, right? That's kind of a, a basic uh, line, however fuzzy, between two types of, of writing. Um, and within that, there are, there are three different challenges. One is metaphysical, you know, we don't have a self to write about. So how can you possibly give a memoir of something that does not exist? Um, another is the sort of more epistemological thing that, you know, we're subjects We're always subjective and therefore we can't provide an objective account of who we are. So, um, you know, it's, so it's bound to be fictional because of this subjective perspective on ourselves that we can't, um, avoid. And then the third one is more of the aesthetic one where you, uh, you note that, um, memoirs are are narratives right they're constructed there's there are elements that are put in and there are many elements that are not merely forgotten but actually explicitly omitted um and that those sorts of selective procedures and the way that various episodes may be presented are meeting demands of narration rather than truth um so can you, um, can you, you know, tell us a bit about each of these three sort of types of fictionalist challenge to the memoir as a, as a work of nonfiction?
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um Yeah, I sort of see this as one of the the big uh, criticisms that comes up of the genre as a whole. You know, it seems like it is built into the ambitions of memoir to give a non-fictional account. Um, And these are various reasons for thinking that's not really possible. In which case, the you know the whole genre of memoir is aiming at this this goal that's unreachable. That seems like a problem. So I wanted to you know give people some resources for responding to those worries, um, writers and readers of memoir who want to say that's not as pressing a problem as you might think. So um, yeah, as you said, you know one reason is a metaphysical one, and the way that you put it was that you know we don't have a self to write about. I don't think it's quite that strong. So. Um, people might say yes we do have a self of sorts but it's not the kind of self um, that we would need to have for memoir to make sense right so uh, you know in a memoir even a short one you know a personal essay is a kind of memoir um, but especially in a longer one um, your the assumption is that this I character the, the narrator protagonist um, is the same one at the beginning of the book as they are at the end right there's a kind of um, stable and unified self. It persists through the book, and that that self matches up with the author, right? The real person who's writing the book. So, there are reasons um, given by philosophers uh, for thinking that we don't have a unified and stable self. Uh, so, one reason for thinking that is broadly speaking, David Hume's reason. Um, which he gave a long time ago um, for thinking that, you know, we, we, we're really just a kind of bundle of perceptions and experiences and thoughts. Uh, they pass through us like a, well, there's not really us. There's a kind of theater, he says, where these, uh, these perceptions occur, but there's no real unified self beyond the individual uh, moments um, or events. Um, and then, of course, you also see something similar in the postmodernist critiques of the self that came through in the 20th century. And also in the Buddhist tradition, since there's not really um, a self in the way that we would need there to be in order for this um, picture of the self memoir depends on to work. Uh, so what I do in the book is sort of explain why you might be tempted by that idea and then talk about what a memoirist can say in response. You know, <laughs> One thing you can do is just push back on that that critique and say, no, there is. we can give an account of a stable self, at least one that's stable enough to count um the memoir to work. Um, but you can also say uh, even if there isn't a unified and stable self, the memoir doesn't have to assume that there is. You can write a memoir that acknowledges that selves are messier, more fragmentary and transitory than that. And many of the more experimental memoirs of the 20th century and beyond have taken that kind of line, have tried to use the book to in a way expose uh, the the messiness of the self. So if you're writing that kind of memoir, you're not going to face this challenge as much as a traditional autobiography would. Uh, So uh, that's a sort of broad broad metaphysical worry about the very basis of memoir. Um, The epistemic worry is more, you know, the idea is, okay, well, maybe there is a, um, a self there to talk about. Um, uh, but how do we ever get the get at the truth about it? Um, how can we expect to really know uh, uh, the truth about what happened to us, what we did, and what we were like in the past? Um, there, there are a variety of different reasons for thinking that's um, a struggle. <laughs> one is the one that you mentioned, this worry that you know we can never really be objective about the past. we' We're necessarily subjective beings, we we see everything. You know, with our me glasses on, um, so we're filtering our experience through our own values and you know priorities and assumptions. So whatever we end up writing about is going to be kind of corrupted or infected by that bias. Um, there's a you know history of thinking that memoirists um, are likely to do that uh, to sort of distort the truth when writing about it um, in a what you might call a motivated way. So. Um, to engage in self-deception about the past. You know, we're not all lucky enough to have had wonderful uh, pasts. So <laughs> we have reasons to sort of deceive ourselves about what we did, what others did to us. Uh, so it could be that we're engaging in self-deception. But there's also these kind of non-motivated forms of distortion. You know, it's like it's, it's easy to just be cognitively biased because you're not very good at making the right kinds of inferences or, you know, you don't have enough information you know, your memory is failing. A lot of people write memoirs later in life when the, you know, the gray cells are starting to deteriorate a little bit. Um, so there are really these sort of, in a way, less kind of suspicious or um, I don't know what you might call sort of like morally problematic forms of distortion um, than self-deception.
2: Right. Um, and then there was the narrative, the aesthetic demands,
0: Yeah, so the usual way to write a memoir is to form it into a a narrative. There are some sort of non-narrative memoirs that are a bit more experimental, but most of us will try and form our story, you know, our life into some sort of story. Uh, And narrative has these features built into it, at least the traditional kind of narrative, that that look like they're going to throw the truth off or throw us off the truth. Uh, So narratives need to be selective you can't can't put absolutely everything into the book you know it'd be very hard to read very boring <laughs> it'd be impossible to get it published if you put every single thing that happened to you into it so you have to be selective and then there's this worry that that kind of aesthetic um, requirement is going to cause you to misrepresent what happened, you know, maybe you leave out, you know, your first three husbands, you don't have space, you're just talking about the fourth, <laughs> you know, it could be kind of good to know about those other three. Um, so there's a selectivity uh, built into narrative that can be distorting. Um, there's also a, a requirement of, of unity. So, you know, you want to, once you've picked out which bits you're going to focus on, uh, you want to form them into this coherent shape that um, holds together in some in some way. Um, and, you know, again, there's this worry that life itself is not very coherent and unified. Um, it's often kind of a hot mess. And so you trying to force it into this, um, this comprehensible shape is, is, is necessarily going to get you further from the truth. Um, and then, yeah, so those two things, I think the main reasons why narrative has, there's a suspicion hanging
2: over it. Um, yeah. So, so how do you, um, I mean, you still, you you do defend the idea that it is nonfiction, right, despite these things.
0: Yeah, um, so yeah, what I do is sort of go through each of those types of challenges and show how, um, in some cases, I think the claims are just overblown to begin with, that we, that we, as I said, in the case of the self, it may be that the self is, in fact, more unified than the critique assumed. Um, in the case of the epistemic reasons, I looked um, at the research on that. Um, obviously, there are some, some, Reasons for you know doubting that we can have perfect access to the truth, but the, the the evidence in psychology suggests that we actually do have a pretty good grip on the broad shape of what happens to us, even if some of the details are off. There's not really reason for deep skepticism um, about our ability to know what happened there. Um, and when it comes to the aesthetic reasons, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that there. Um, yeah, Again, particular narratives might be um, overly distorting, but narrative as such I don't think is distorting. Um, You know, there's this sense that the fact that something is constructed, right, you construct a narrative somehow um, shows that it's false, Um, and I think that's a faulty inference. Um, The mere fact that you've kind of made a representation, all representations are made, doesn't show that there's no correlation between that and what and what actually happened. So I try to take kind of measured response. I I recognize the challenge, but I don't think that it is this deep fundamental problem in any of those cases, uh, the way that it's sometimes presented.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I I was, when I was reading that part, I was thinking about, well, photography, right? I mean, one of the arguments against photography as an art was precisely because it was just a copy, you know, it's basically just, you know, taking a picture and, and there was nothing artistic about it, nothing aesthetically interesting about photography. And of course that, you know, is just, you know, sort of the opposite problem. You, you, it's too much truth. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's obviously been overcome. So uh, there's no reason why that particular, you know, aesthetic issue would be a problem coming from the other direction. Right. Yeah. For, for that's narrative. really
0: interesting point. Yeah. I think there is this assumption that there's this deep conflict between art and truth. You know, the, the book is called Artful Truths. I, I don't think there is that deep conflict. There's a you know, closer relationship than you might think.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right.
2: Let me, let me just ask another question. Um, so those pressures, you know, um, that you all talk about, the, about, you know, the difficulty of, of, of you know, constructing a memoir... You know that that would you know really be a, a memoir and not some sort of uh, fictional account. Um, but I was also thinking there's also an, a kind of an external pressure of you know marketability or, or the publishers, you know. And uh, so it's, it's not just that um, people might you know leave out bits, over dramatize other bits, you know, the ones that make them look good. Only that, but that in fact, um, publishers are going to impose certain demands for drama, and the, and and people who are not already say well known, you know, like Michelle Obama or or Hillary Clinton or any of these people, uh, might be more subject to that sort of pressure and might uh, be more more vulnerable to. To dramatizing their lives in ways that depart from the nonfictional aim, uh, more than it would for uh, people who are already famous, do you, do, is that a is that a worry as well?
0: Yeah, no, I think it definitely is. I think there's always going to be that temptation, no, particularly if you want your book to be like a mega bestseller, right? That's going <laughs> to so you're going with maybe they call like the big five publishers, you, know, you may get that kind of pressure, but. You know, I, I, memoir is also a. It, it's an art form. It's a. It's a form of literature, and a lot of the people who will write modern literary memoirs are not aiming to have an absolute blockbuster. You know, they want to um, work with editors um, at more literary presses, um, maybe small ones or some of the bigger ones, mm-hmm. um, and their priority is to you know to write something that is is a genuine and. Um, you know, well-crafted um, account of their life um, and will be resistant to that kind of editing. So I guess I think it's, it's a challenge, but I, I don't think that, um, you know, the good memoirs um, that we see out there are overly affected by that. I think that the deeper worry is sort of one, not really about sort of publishing executives pushing you towards a certain kind of narrative arc, but more, you know, cultural, um, sort of co- culture doing that, right? There's There's some... There's a, a lot of evidence in psychology that we all tend to go towards certain kinds of narrative conventions. Um, so there's a you know sort of a classical story arc that we've drawn to where there's a setup and rising action, there's a crisis and a, a resolution. And there are particular story forms that you find in fairy tales or parables or myths um, that, that we use to kind of frame our own experience. So I think it might be more those sort of subconscious promptings rather than the promptings of a um, publishing executive that are more uh, distorting uh, there.
2: So, I mean, why does it matter even, right? Uh, you know, there there have been big uh, uproars over certain, um, you know, famous memoirs. I think Rigoberto Menchu and then James Frey, you know, and the idea that, you know, they contain lies or, you know, stuff that's just made up. Um, um, and so the, the very fact that these, um, that these memoirs or alleged memoirs, I mean, it's hard to, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's hard to know what to call them. But in any case, um, you know, the fact, the very fact that there is this big uproar about them shows that, um, you know, first of all, we, we do uh, distinguish memoir from fiction, uh, you know, however difficult it might be. Um, and it also disturbs us when a memoir, you know, departs from the non-fictional, you know, yeah. um, you know, criteria or conditions, whatever it is that makes it nonfiction, and um, and so we we care deeply in in some way about it not being fiction. So what's what? Why do we care?
0: Yeah, no, you're right. People are very passionate about this kind of thing. Um, I think there are sort of two broad sets of reasons. Um, maybe the most obvious ones are the moral reasons. Um, so when people engage in this really large scale fictionalizing or you might just call it lying <laughs> um, well you know, <laughs> you know readers uh um often feel that they've had there's, there's a certain their expectations have been violated they, they have been lied to directly they may not know the you know the author but they have uh, extended their trust to the reader there's an assumption within the genre that you're that you're telling the truth um and they've had that trust violated there's a sense of kind of betrayal there um so this is a sort of personal sense of betrayal. Um, there's also, you know, worries about the actual impacts of the um, truths that are being told. Um, so James Frey's uh, "A Million Little Pieces" was a substance um, substance abuse addiction memoir. Um, so it was narrating his recovery. And there's, you know, many people have, have been through very difficult experiences as a result of substance abuse. And so having someone lie about it um, in a in a work. Um, is it's not helpful to that community of people and can be you know harmful to um their their relatives and friends perceptions of how they will recover um the sense of sort of people who take um you know drugs are liars you know there's this kind of there's just these worries about the impact of the particular lies too um so there are moral reasons for worrying about it Um, um i also think there are aesthetic reasons so we do uh, those of us who love memoir want this genre to persist. Um we want there to be a space in the literary universe for non-fictional accounts. Um and if this border becomes too fuzzy, um it's not possible for the genre to really um, it's it's a sort of a threat, an existential threat to the to the genre. So if you think it's valuable and you care about it, um, for various reasons, you know we could go into um you'll you'll be worried about the way that um it's, it' it can't really be preserved if people are continually continuously expecting um that people are not really comply, complying with that convention
2: yeah i mean it it is an interesting sort of tension there between on the one hand uh this commitment or this idea that you know oh it's just a you know, a subjective narrative of some sort. And yet, at the same time, you lied to me. Right. (laughs) I mean, that, that just seems like memoirs in this very unstable equilibrium between you should tell us the truth and you can't tell us the truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> in the case of James Frey, he lied. He said, he, I think he was in prison, but maybe overnight, he claimed that he was there for three months, you know, so uh-huh. there are certain kinds of yeah. sort of hoax memoirs where someone pretends, writes a memoir on behalf of someone else without asking them, or the fake Holocaust memoirs, you know, those kinds of. Lies, and not because you know the person is necessarily experiencing life in a subjective fashion; they can't really get at the truth of their experience. That they are, you know, straight up <laughs> misrepresenting. So those are the big threads. I think um, readers are going to be tolerant of, um, you know, some failures to capture the historical truth um, because that's in the nature of um, of, of, of humans. Right. Um, yeah. What, what what is the
2: what is the harm to the community? I, under- I understand the harm. That one feels when one is lied to, right? That sort of betrayal. Um, but you know, clearly, it's it's you know, it goes beyond that when you you have sort of a fake Holocaust memoir and you know, actual Holocaust survivors uh, feel that they have been you know ha- harmed in some way, no matter how you know accurate the depiction might be. Well, what is what is or or you know, people who have genuinely, you know, gone through long periods in jail for, you know, various, you know, drug related um, problems. Um, Yeah, I
0: mean, in the case of Holocaust denial, you know, I mean, the Holocaust memoirs, the fake, there is this, you know, really problematic phenomenon of Holocaust denial, right? So people are always trying to say that thing didn't happen. Um, So if you then have a fake account of it coming out, you're kind of fanning the flames of that really um, repellent um, phenomenon. Uh, so that's a clear case. I also think, you know, sometimes people say there's this worry that you're, you're edging out memoirs by, um, by uh, actual Holocaust survivors. You know, there is a limited market, um, literary market out there. Um, there are not very many Holocaust survivors left. If you're doing a fake one, you know, and you take uh, control of the publishing cycle on that for a year or two, you know, it's a, so that is, a, I think, almost a, a, the clearest case of a moral realm.
2: Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's as if, uh, you know, maybe it's something like, you know, how dare you talk about our experience as if you've actually lived it when you haven't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a kind of appropriation. I think it's similar in some ways to worries about cultural appropriation more generally. It right. Feels disrespectful.
2: Right. Um, so how about the, the other people in, in more, uh, in a memoir? I mean, we, we, you know, obviously they don't, they're not just narratives about the person who is writing the memoir, but you know, other people, Yeah, <laughs> you know, their family members, their mother, you know, um, those ex, the three ex-husbands, you know, whatever. Um, they all get dragged in, uh, or at least there's always this danger that they will be. And, um, And there is this kind of issue of how do you, uh, you know, what what sort of um, obligations do memoirists have to other people?
0: Yeah, so this is a really big question. I think it's one that um, every memoirist struggles with. Um, So one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to sort of help people um, who are writing a memoir to sort of think about this in a slightly more you know, give them some advice for how to think about it in a, a clear or systematic way. Um, what I did in the, the book was distinguish between uh, five different types of wrong that you might do um, in the course of writing a memoir, um, and and give some you know some some guidance for how you might um, avoid those. I think it's hard to reduce this very complicated. Uh, subject to a very clear set of principles uh, because a lot is going to depend on the details of the person's particular situation but it's nice at least to be able to distinguish between possible wrongs that you could do and keep them in mind. I think a lot of the time people think well the main one is harm right do first do no harm you know make sure you don't harm anyone while writing Um, I I think that's you know that's a good intuition to have but um, it's not really sufficient for a couple of reasons one is that um, harm isn't the only way that you could wrong someone in a memoir you could also violate their privacy in a non-harmful way or you could exploit them so you could um, take unfair advantage of them um, even if they somehow benefited from that act it could still be thought to be bad uh, you could betray them by violating their trust um, and you could possibly appropriate from them sort of steal this story I'm not unless sure that that one's a concern we should be worried about uh, so one reason is the other ways of wronging someone than harming them and also um sometimes you're going to harm someone when writing a memoir but they don't have a right not to be harmed um you know they don't the, the, the type of harm that they're suffering is one that you don't have an obligation to prevent so <laughs> um yeah um so yeah, I, I could go through each of those those possibilities in the book, uh, and try and try and provide some advice about how to deal with them.
2: Uh, yeah, um, so I mean, there's a there's a uh, an issue that you know you you sort of brings up both of this, You know, it's like what what do memoirists, um owe to the public, the reading public, as well as to the people that they write about, and I, I tend to think of this. And this is not your wording, as the you know the larger truth defense or the bigger truth mm. defense, um, which you hear a lot of. You know, it's like, well, it's not quite the truth, but it's it's the bigger truth, right? Or, right. In some way, and I, and I, you know, it's sort of like you know you can allow yourself a certain amount of you know literary license because you're getting at a deeper truth, Uh, you know, so there's various metaphorical uh, ways of describing this way of, of, uh, of doing something, (laughs) which (laughs) is not exactly like telling a truth, but it's telling a deeper truth or a wider truth or something. I've always been confused by that concept of wider truth deeper truth whatever Um, yeah but you do distinguish between what you call experiential truth and then this other weird deeper truth that just seems like so vague and wishy-washy that it's not really saying much at all Um, yeah so can you explain that distinction that you you do draw you do try to draw that
0: yeah I mean, this idea of um, the deeper truth. There's something to that. I think it's not the thing that people think that they're saying when they use that term. But it is true that um, that literary writing um, is special. It's a special use of language, um, and uh, the meaning of a literary text doesn't reduce straightforwardly to the meaning of the individual sentences. There's, there's often something else going on. That the truth that you're that you're expressing might be, you know more or different than the sum of the parts right so when you read a novel it's, it's a set of uh, statements about things that happen you know it's anna Karenina and you know in a particular time in in Russia but you're getting you're getting something often you're getting a kind of insight about life um, that goes beyond those um, those events or those mental states that are being described so sometimes you know there's something to be said about um, having a more flexible notion of what truth would mean it's not just a matter of each individual sentence lining up So I think sometimes it's just you can understand it as a claim about the nature of literary truth across the board. Um, But I don't think that you can use that claim about literary language to justify um, making things up in a memoir in a big way. (laughs) Um, I do think there there are reasons for leaving things out, again, to go back to this idea about the selectivity of narrative. Um, I think it's fine for memoirs to leave some things out. Sometimes putting certain details in will distort the picture. Um, but kind of making things up in service of a deeper truth, I think you're just moving into uh, fiction at that point. Um, and as I said before, I think it's helpful for us to have a distinction uh, between those two forms of, of writing. Uh,
2: so. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like with experiential truth – even if it does have sort of somewhat narrative elements or um, it still maintains that link to reality.
0: Yeah, I, mean, some, I tend to think that yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the more helpful distinction is between experiential truth and historical fact. Uh, so experiential truth, I use that term to just... Um, refer to what it was like to have a certain experience or what it felt. It was a sort of subjective experience, but what it felt at the time and how you interpreted that later on. Um, so say you had a birth, fifth birthday party that was absolutely, you know, went terribly wrong, was chaos. You know, when you're writing a memoir about the birthday party, um, you can, you're expressing your experiential truth of what it felt like and what it meant to you. Um, there could be a difference between that, which is a true expression of what it is that um, you felt. Um, and what actually happened? Maybe you were just mistaken as a five-year-old about what was really going on, right? So there's historical fact. Um, I do think there can be a disconnect between those two things. That's kind of pervasive. Um, so it's not really a deeper truth, but it's a, it's a, it's a question about what the truth is about.
2: Um, right. Yeah. Right. So um, we were talking before about, you know, how a memoir now is not, you know, seen as something that, you know, only only famous people do. You know, we, the, the, us ordinary folk are, are also <laughs> permitted to write them um, in some way. Um, we always have been, of course, but we haven't um, until fairly recently. Um, yeah. But why? I mean, why would anybody be interested in writing a memoir, right? I mean, there's this idea that, well, you're just being a narcissist. <laughs> Maybe you want to take revenge on other people. You know, maybe you just want to, you know, self-justify what you've done with your life, which um, you know may be particularly prone to, uh, you know, various forms of embellishment of the truth. Um, so, uh, what what are the those are the bad reasons for writing. <laughs> you know, a, they are moral- the bad are they-
0: reasons. They sound bad, but I was just thinking, as you said them, you know, Rousseau and his confessions, he's definitely a narcissist and definitely aimed at self justifying. <laughs> it's still a great book, you know? <laughs> so,
2: right. Um, yeah. Fair but enough. they're
0: morally bad. It seems that they're morally bad. Yeah. Right,
2: right. Um, so, uh, well, that, that raises an interesting question, <laughs> um, which is even if the motives are morally bad, like, so what? Right um, <laughs> but are there are there you know positive reasons for for writing one? Yeah,
0: I mean I think you know one uh, one important one is um, to make a work of art. you know there is this impression I think that um, memoir is somehow less literary than the other forms of um, the other genres, fiction, drama, and poetry. Um, But anyone who's read, you know, some of of the um, really great classics in the the tradition and some more contemporary ones can see that they can be just as, you know, well-formed, masterful, um, poetic, you know, beautiful, complex, subtle, anything you want to say has literary value than fiction. So you may just want to write a work of art and you may be someone who finds it easiest to do that by sticking closely to your own experience of the world and not going too far into the speculative Uh, So I think making a work of art is a legitimate and an important motivation. Um, Sometimes people um, have uh, some kind of moral uh, uh, goal in mind too. So people will write what you might call a social justice memoir, right? So one that's trying to expose injustice in the past or or the present. Um, So you've got a kind of um, a moral mission (laughs) that you're hoping to promote. Maybe you want to help others with your story uh, who are going through something similar. Um so there's there's those. Um, some people just want to memorialize um, people in their in their lives who've um, passed on. Um, they might also want to memorialize themselves. It's a little more self-centered, but the sense that you want to kind of do tribute to and honor uh, people in your life, but, you know, it's hard to do that through fiction. you have to depart from. Uh, their lives in a more dramatic way. So I think that's also an important thing for many memoirists is to capture the past um, and express their, um, yeah, their sense that it's precious and important and matter, and particular people mattered. Um, so there are all of those. I think there's also some more um, personal reasons that aren't narcissistic exactly, but many people find the act of writing a memoir to be healing. So there's a lot of evidence in psychology about how writing your experiences down can help you to, some would say, sort of overcome them, but it can also be a matter of taking responsibility for your past. And There's a, a healing redemptive quality to that. Um, so I think those are central. One that comes up a lot that I think um, maybe underlies many of the others uh, is this goal of seeking some kind of meaning in your past experience coming to understand what it meant you know forming um, the chaos of your life into some kind of shape um, or locating some kind of form in it uh, i think that's you know a, an important goal there's skepticism about whether we can do that you know we we're talking about that a bit before maybe there is no form to life um but memoir can be one way of trying to get at least a partial and provisional grip on uh what your life was and, and what it's meant so far. So I don't think that's inherently narcissistic at all. Um, often when we read a memoir, it may be about the particular person, right? That's how it, how it works. Um, but it's supposed to connect to more universal concerns. A good memoir starts small and uses that small person's life as a lens to open up to a much broader Horizon. It's a, a wonderful thing when you feel that happening. It's sort of miraculous, you know. You think you're just reading about one person, and suddenly you're reading about everyone and everything. Um, yeah.
2: So, has anybody ever like re- wrote, written a memoir and then sort of looked back and looked at the memoir and said that that's not me? <laughs> uh, that's that's a that's a there's a narrative self there to use the the you know the common phrase today. Uh, but that narrative self isn't really me.
0: Yes, I certainly think that happens repeatedly in the drafting of a memoir. People will often take years over it and have to radically revise it. I'm sure it also happens after you've published it. And uh, We're in this age now of serial memoirs, so you don't just write one and then you're done. Uh, you, there's one woman, Catherine Harrison, has written five book-length memoirs. So you can always take a second shot at it uh, <laughs> or a fifth shot at it, as with the husbands. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think there is this recognition now that it's 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 really, it's just likely that your understanding of the past will change. And and also the meaning of the past changes over time is, as new events happen, um, it's not that the past changes, but our understanding of their significance or their actual significance uh, changes as other events follow. Um, they become part of a new, you know, chain that they weren't in before. So there will be another, you know, story to be told about the same thing once those later things occur. I think that's, you know, fine. I don't think there's anything suspect about that.
2: Right. So what are what are some of your favorite memoirs, and 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 why are they your yeah. favorites?
0: That's a fun question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. I tend to like hybrid memoirs, so ones that are doing personal narrative, but also in connection with something else and, and playing, letting those two things sort of play with each other. So, um, you know, there'll be some theory in there or history or criticism. Um, within that category, I have, a, I think, a special weakness for, um, for memoirs that combine uh, personal narrative with literary criticism and biography. But always through the you know the writer's experience. It's not a simple biography or critical work. So it's uh-huh. told through the author. So books like one of my very favorites is um, "The Possessed" by Elif Batuman. What was that? It's called "The Possessed." Uh huh. Um, it's a collection of essays about being in grad school at Stanford, um, studying the great Russian authors, um, and so it's her experience of being a, a literature student. Um, but also uh, she uses it to do biographical essays about each of these writers. It's very, very funny. Um, And another example is Out of Sheer Rage by Jeff Dyer, which is a combination of memoir and sort of travel writing. It's about him trying and and failing to write a biography of D.H. Lawrence. Uh (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah, sort of about procrastination and the various ways we undermine ourselves And by the end of it, we do, in fact, have a biography of D.H. Lawrence, but in a very non-standard way, and it's mainly about Jeff Dyer's struggles. So it's still a memoir, but it it opens out to this broader subject. So, yeah, I I like those kinds of books. There's another kind of example of that that isn't funny at all, Julian Barnes' Levels of Life, uh, which is a tribute to his wife after she died. It's also about hot air ballooning and uh, Sarah Bernhardt it's at first you're reading and thinking well what what's going on here but it just builds up it draws together and you get to the last part, the part that matters about his wife and it's just like a bomb going off you know the resonance has just become so so great yeah
2: how how about among you know more classical memoirs rather than modern
0: yeah um I actually really like I don't know what what it is whether it really has much literary quality but I actually really like John Stuart Mills autobiography uh-huh. um I just I love getting that sense of his, um, of his of his voice. You know, he's a great writer. He's written um, some very engaging um, philosophical books. But this is about how he um, got into philosophy, the midlife crisis that he has. So it's sort of meta philosophical. Um, yeah, I, I love that book. I just I like that sense of really kind of connecting to him on a more personal level. Um, so yeah, I point to that one at least.
2: One of the one of the ones that you mentioned that uh, um, uh, what is what was her name uh, Bechtel, A Fun Home. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Allison <laughs> Bechtel, yeah. yeah. Um, um, which is a great book, you know, but it's a it's a it's it's marketed, I think, as a graphic novel rather. At least that's you know the way it was like presented to me and. Um, but it's it it does seem a bit more memoir than novel.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's a graphic memoir. I guess I, I, mean, my understanding is that she did, in fact, grow up in that funeral home um, with you know her father, who later um, turned out to be gay or maybe sort of closeted gay at the time. She was yeah. this um, you know growing up as a as a lesbian, and so they had this sort of similar experience going on, but they didn't really understand each other. They connected on certain levels, um, but yeah, it's done through um, through um, yeah, uh, her art as well as always
2: um, is an increasing
0: amount of those coming out to graphic, um, yeah, graphic which
2: which which should have raises the issue of how how much can you get away with in a memoir without having words?
0: Yeah, right. When does it stop? I mean, when does it stop um, right. becoming? Yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, I think this is one of those cases with some vagus. You know, things kind of fuzzy at the at the boundaries um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's a good question i'm not sure
2: um okay well um uh i think we're we're getting close to time um let me let me just ask you know what are you what are you working on now is there a you know follow-up to this or is this kind of the culmination of a project (laughs) and you're going to something else or what what's what's on your i guess philosophical slash literary but mainly philosophical horizon at this point
0: yeah it is um, philosophical slash literary so i'm writing two other books um, i mentioned um the memoir earlier so it's a memoir about the nature and value of philosophy you know what is it why might you do it um, what might doing it do to you um and it's through my own experience so how those questions have played out for me um how i got into philosophy um, in my various adventures in grad school and as a junior professor, so it's trying to get at philosophy, but also at these bigger questions about how to how to balance intellect and emotion, I guess, in a in a um, fulfilling life. Mm. So um, I have a that, that's I hope hope kind of done now. It seems like that's mainly done, and then I'm writing a, a collection of uh, kind of linked essays on on the philosophy of twins. I'm an identical twin, um, so again, this is a kind of hybrid. It's using my own experience of identical twinhood. You're a twin? Yeah. um, My Uh twin is actually illustrating the book, so we're going to have pictures she's done throughout it. Um, But, yeah, with philosophical theories, I think there's some interesting philosophical questions about identity, about love, objectification, that um, thinking about twins can shed light on. Um, And it's also, you know, it's fun to write it that way, talk about my own experience of being a twin, being seen as a twin. Um, and bringing in some theory,
2: too. Huh? interesting. Um, well, I mean, I don't think I have any more questions for you. Um, but I did want to say, I mean, I, I very much enjoyed the book. It was, you know, very, uh, very easy, you know, to read. But at the same time you know, raise lots of interesting philosophical questions and, you know, discuss them in a very, very clear sort of way. So I, I really appreciate this insight into into memoir.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, and it was, it's been really nice talking to you about it too. It's, it's been a fun conversation. So thank you for inviting me um, to speak with you.
2: Well, good luck with your current books and um, uh, I look forward to seeing them as well. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Helena DeBris, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wellesley College. We've been talking about her new book, Artful Truths, The Philosophy of Memoir, which is just out from University of Chicago Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.